First of all, I would like to say that I'm both humbled and honored to be here. Um, one of the discouraging things of my life as a teenager was that I'd go to revival meetings and there was these evangelists that come that had it all put together and never struggled with sin. That wasn't me. I was wicked. I was no box of chocolates. And I lived in the reality of temptation. And so I want to assure you tonight that I'm going to be honest with you and you're going to see me warts and all. I want you to be honest with God. He sees you warts and all. I have a little wife from Canada. Her name is Grace. And if God wills, she will be here Friday. Um, she's flying to Raleigh. And I hope to go pick her up. We had five children. The oldest went to be with the Lord. We have a daughter that lives in Macon, Mississippi. And our three youngest sons are all presently uh, farming there where we live. <clears throat> and if you want to see pictures, um, I can make some arrangements. When I was a boy, I grew up in Harrisonburg. <clears throat> Everything's better in Harrisonburg, you know. I mean, you got to turn your face towards Dayton to pray <laughs> to hear them tell it. I was 16 when we moved to the lower part of South Carolina, and uh, there was those in Harrisonburg that felt sorry for us. That here we had to go to a public school, and it was an all-black school, and what they didn't know that our parents uh, promoted it as the will of God and an adventure, and we loved that school. The food was good, and we learned to understand and talk to them people, and they were our friends. And um, I had, I shouldn't be telling you all this, but I had meetings in Harrisonburg not long ago, some, and I've been going for 49 years, almost 50 years, and a lady came up to me after church and said, well, I guess now that, that your son's kind of managed to farm, I, I guess you'll move back up here. And I said, you what? It, it ain't home no more. But anyway, now, that's all my Harrisonburg jokes. But that's where I came from. But when I was a boy, they didn't fool around back then. We had revival meetings for two weeks. And I have a friend that um, is with the BMA churches, and he does a lot of evangelistic work, and he says it's been years since he's even went for one week. They start Wednesday and go through Sunday, maybe. And so um, <clears throat> I remember sitting through those Brunk revivals for six weeks. We didn't go every night, but we didn't have all those cool things to do. We worked, and then we went to the Brunk revivals, and then we went to our revivals, and that's what you did for social life, and I kind of miss some of that. Yes, you can get weary going away, but we need to choose and prioritize what we go away for. But I told you that to tell you this. I know what it's like to sit on a bench 
every night for two weeks. And so I want you children to want to come here. Y'all got nice soft benches. We had slatted folding chairs and uh, hard benches. And so I'm going to tell you all some things to memorize. Now the first one, I'm going to teach it to you tonight, and then tomorrow I'm going to ask you to say it back to me. And so maybe your school teachers will want to write this down and rehearse it with you in, in class tomorrow. One time there was a man came from Oregon to our church. His name was Marcus Lynn. And he was a serious Bible teacher. And he wrote a book on Romans, a, a commentary. It's the gold standard. None better. But he told us, about a story about when his father went to town one day and bought a new suit coat. And you know this little pocket right here that's worthless? On that little pocket, somebody had embroidered on that thing this little proverb. And I want you to remember this. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? All right, let's say it together. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? Now that proverb don't really strike a chord with you children like it did us. Because it's not cool to smoke or chew, is it? How many of you all under the age of 40, have ever really been tempted to smoke or chew. Now, how many of you all that are 50 and older, that was a big deal. You've been, you, were, you were tempted. You went to school. And, you see, that used to be cool. But now, because people, some things, society gets some things better. Not always, not usually, but sometimes they do. But you will be tempted as you grow up to do things you shouldn't. And so you remember that little proverb. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. What I want to share this evening, I want to entitle Maintaining the Right Balance. And it has to do with rabbits and quail. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, we have here in several chapters consecutively of God telling Moses to write this stuff down so that these people get it right to learn how to raise their children. They've been slaves in Egypt for several generations, 400 years, and they weren't doing so good. And he says, there's some things I want you to know and how to teach your children. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land wherever you go to possess it, that thou mayest fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that they may increase mightily, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the word of the Lord is one Lord, 
And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and bind them as a sign upon thine hand, and upon thine frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee a great and goodly cities which thou did not build, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, then thou shalt have eaten and be full. Then beware lest they forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And I could read very similar verses through chapter 7, chapter 8. And then at the end of chapter 8, when we, my children come home, they, they don't come home, some of them didn't come home very often, they lived too far away, but when the ones that show up for Thanksgiving before they can eat what mama's cooked, I read them these verses. And I want to read them to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 10. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the great land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God and failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this days. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. And now let's go down to verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. And if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like all the nations the Lord destroyed before you so that you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. That doesn't sound like a very good time to me. But yet, Anabaptist families all over North America, the U.S. and Canada and many other places sat down and we heap wealth on ourselves and we earned it. We work for it. It's ours. Not according to this. Beware. I'm um, privileged to work with a custom silage crew, and I'm one of the cart drivers. And uh, the other guys are down there in their 20s and teens, and, and I just haul silage and for about three weeks every July. And, and I listen to them boys talk, and they bring me food, and life is good. But one summer, I noticed something different. There was a lot of little rabbits, and there was little quail, and there was turkeys in the cornfield, more than usual. 
And when I was a boy, I used to raise pheasants and quail, and I still enjoy hearing the sound of that little rooster quail setting up on the fence post in the early spring morning and singing his heart out just because he can. And the little hen quail, she has her own tone too, and she's interesting. Pretty little song. Distinct, lovely song. But you know, quail are at the bottom of the food chain. They experience a high mortality rate, almost 70 to 80 percent. Never make it to adulthood. But they're prolific breeders. And with optimum conditions may raise several broods a summer. Now that was pre-1980. There are several things that brought pressure to bear and brought the demise, almost total collapse of wild quail populations in the lower south and north Florida. And I would say that would include you all too. In 1978, coyotes were first spotted in upstate South Carolina, and in the 40 years since, they've made their presence known in all the counties in South Carolina, but nowhere has it been more noticeable than in the wildlife community, almost to totally upset the balance in forest and field. The rabbits, the quail, the turkeys, the nests, the eggs, the little fawns have been ravaged. They're gone. A few years ago, there's a professional trapper lives close by, and we asked him if he wouldn't come work on the coyotes. And so several of us farms got together, and every winter he comes into our community, and he spends his time working his art, craftiness against the coyotes, and he, he didn't get them all, but he really sobered them up. And this past spring is when I noticed that there were fawns by the doe's side. Little quail and little rabbits running through the cornrows. And suddenly, my wife Grace has become the old Mr. McGregor of, like Peter Rabbit. She planted her okra four times. The tomatoes and eggplant had the side eaten out of the fruit. And there were baby rabbits running in the pole beans and in the watermelon vines. And there's big rabbits hiding out at night. And they graze off all her southern peas. And they, they eat anything. We tried hot sauce. We tried hot lead. And they just seemed to multiply like rabbits. <laughs> How many of you have ever heard about the rabbit plagues of Australia? Nobody? Do you want to hear about them? Yeah. <clears throat> In 1859, there was a man moved from England to Australia. His name was Mr. Thomas Austin, and he loved to hunt rabbits in England, where he used to live. And there was no rabbits in Australia, so he had imported 12 pairs of rabbits to the uh, next ship that come down to Australia from England. He, he brought the A, sent these rabbits down. And in 1920, less than 70 years after the rabbits were let loose in Australia, there was an estimated 10 billion rabbits in Australia. There was no natural predators. And so each rabbit 
has uh, 18 to 30 babies per summer or per year, and then within a few weeks, them rabbits are having babies, and it just was getting out of hand. And it said they destroyed 2 million acres of pasture land just in a year. And they started in New South Wales, and then they went to South Australia, and then went to Queensland. And it says by 1890, rabbits were spotted all the way over to Western Australia. Well, Australia's climate is ideal for rabbits. It's warm most of the time, and there's a lot of grass and browse that they can eat. Rabbits can't eat up high on a bush like a goat or a deer. But it was just a wonderful environment and lots of food, and so, and no predators. Imagine that. Currently, there's about 2.5 million square miles of Australia with about 200 million rabbits. Well, that's a lot of miles compared to that amount of rabbits, but let me tell you what happened. <clears throat> rabbits ate everything, and uh, these rabbits just took over. And in 1901, the Australian government went on a national approach, and they decided to build a fence and they went from North Australia all the way down to South Australia with a fence. And it worked for a while. But the rabbits would dig under it or they would go around the end while they were building it. And so they went out a while away and they built another fence down to try to cut them off. And that worked for a while. And then they said, well, we got to keep them from getting to the West Coast. And so they built a fence east and west to try to corner them. It didn't work. Rabbits are just everywhere and it ate all the grass. In 1950, the Australian government decided to go with biological weapons and they found a virus that from South America called Myxoma virus that makes rabbits sick in South America. So they imported some of this virus and they gave it to the mosquitoes and the mosquitoes went around and bit all the rabbits. And a lot of rabbits died. 90% of the rabbits died. But the problem was mosquitoes don't go in the desert. They have to have water to breathe. So the rabbits that lived in the desert didn't get bit. And so they just kept on having rabbits and they moved back out in the country back where grass was better. And then finally in 1995, they brought in another called rapid death disease where rabbits in arid areas are susceptible to that. But at the end of the day, there's still too many rabbits in Australia. And today, um, they've pretty much figured that the rabbit problems are going to be here to stay. Uh, they shoot as many as they can and they poison some and they use these viruses. But then rabbits mutate, the, the viruses mutate and, and the rabbits get used to the things and so it's an ongoing thing. They could bring in wild animals or hawks or something but they're not native to that country then they would have that problem and so they're a little slow to bring in predators from other countries. 
If you travel from the little town that we kind of live around, Govan, north towards Denmark, there's a Mennonite family lives there, and one day I rode by, and there was a sign out by the mailbox that said, Rabbits for Sale. And someone told me that every family should allow their children to grow rabbits so that children learn how to lose money graciously. <laughs> I told you all that to tell you this, that in creation there was balance. And God said how he created things and he managed it. And before the fall, everything was in balance. But one day when the little rabbits went to school, they figured out very quickly that it wasn't going to be a lot of fun at recess playing with the fox and hawk children. And things have been out of balance ever since. Now, I want to make some parallels this evening about the right balance in your family life with my rabbits and quail illustrations. I went to a seminar on conservation tillage not long ago put on by Clemson University or like your Virginia Tech. And they were trying to teach farmers eco-friendly practices and they had these workshops you could take in about how to be environmentally more responsible or you know, they had their agenda. <clears throat> but the DNR was there and they were having a workshop there on how to get quail to come back to your farms. And they told that uh, they did all these experiments and they had these college interns that would lay by the incubators and they would cluck and try to sound like a mama quail a couple days before the eggs hatched and they would get used to these college students voices and then when they hatched they would stay there by the brooders talk to the quail and on day five they could a student could walk around with her little flock of quail and it would just follow them around and thought it was their mama and so then they would gather their birds up and take them out to the field. And they would go down and up and down this row of beans and that row of cotton and peanuts. And, and they would count what the birds were eating and weigh them. And they were trying to find out why the quail were going away. And then they would get airplanes and spray over top of them to see if that was killing them. And they found out that wasn't the problem. It actually helped because then the worms fell down on the ground where the little quails could eat them. But what these students were doing to these baby quails was what they called imprinting. They started with eggs that were soon to hatch, then in the brooder, and then out into the field. And I want to tell you parents tonight that you need to imprint your children. Just like a mama quail imprints her babies. There's some basic needs in maintaining the balance in our homes. And the first one that every mama quail knows to raise a successful clutch of babies is warmth. You know when a quail chick hatches, have you ever seen a day-old quail chick? It's a fuzzball about as big as a dime. No bigger, but it can move. The little legs, big as a dime, and it can move. And <clears throat> Amazing. And, um, but he has to be warm. They are dependent on their mother's warmth at night and on cool, cloudy days. And they need a high-protein diet. Little quails are not looking for seeds. That's for big birds. 
Little quails have to grow flight feathers, and that takes protein. Why do they need flight feathers? Hawks and foxes. It is so important that they can fly quickly, not get big and fat. That don't help. Boy, when that hawk is coming, you got to fly. And so that's the first order of business, to eat, to grow flight feathers. Small children need spiritual warmth and emotional environment to be able to flourish and grow into healthy, balanced adults. Yes, blankets are necessary too. But beyond that, a peaceful, loving environment, void of anger and sharp retort and criticism, should be the way you brood your children in your home. No child should ever go to bed at night with the slightest doubt that they are loved, wanted, needed, and belong, and that their parents' love for each other is all-enduring. A wet and soggy spring or summer will wreak havoc with little quail. They just don't have enough body mass to stay warm. And if it's cloudy and rainy and they can't all get up under mama. But the cold, wet blankets of criticism and fault-finding and anger towards children will cause a lot of suffering and a high spiritual casualty rate as well. James chapter 1 verse 19, my dear brothers or fathers and mothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Ephesians 6 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up into training and instruction of the Lord. The second thing little quail need is cover. As I told you before, an adult quail's diet consists mostly of seeds and grain. But a quail chick must have a diet almost totally of protein, of insects and worms. The only way for a little chick to survive the claws and teeth of all the hungry bobcats, hawks, coons, and coyotes is either to have a safe place where predators can't get them, to be able to scratch and look for places to run where there's bugs that live with cover overhead. They love blackberry brambles, tall steamy weeds and flowers, ragweeds, sunflowers, black-eyed Susans, where they can scurry underneath, but the hawks and the other animals can't see them down underneath. Border and filter strips between the cotton and peanut fields where the bugs grow and they can get to their home in the brambles without the big scary animals getting to them. And so that's one thing they teach at the seminar. Yeah, grow your fields, but leave some weeds or some blackberry brambles at the edge so they can get in there and have a safe place after they come out of the field to eat. Scientists in wildlife, <clears throat> oh, there is a world of jackals and vultures that would be very happy to find your little ones out searching for the bugs we all need without the cover provided by godly homes and a spiritually sound disciplined church community. 
It is so important that you know where your children are. That they're not just out on the town unsupervised and and the world is so full of wickedness. Know where your children are. Mama Quail knows where hers are. And when they scatter, she whistles a little bit and they all come running. Scientists and wildlife biologists suggest that the lack of good cover, fence row to fence row tillage practices that have been practiced the last hundred years has probably had as negative effect on quail populations as coyotes. I read you those verses in Deuteronomy 6, the responsibilities of parents and families uh, to train their children, to immerse them in the teaching of the law of God, and to provide safe places. That is providing cover needed to protect the innocent, impressionable lies put into our care. Help your children to make good choices, to maintain healthy friendships. I want to tell you this evening, influence is huge. It's hard to undo. Influence is huge. Help your children choose their friends. Teach them to be polite and courteous and friendly to all. But closer friendships where we find our approval and our fulfillment in our social lives should be chosen very carefully. We went to public school. Um, we went to school and we got on the bus and came home. We didn't play football and we didn't go to homecoming and we didn't go to the prom. It was us and them. Why didn't my dad send us to EMHS? Because there was a blurring. We didn't know who was them and who was us. And he felt it was safer to send us to public school where we knew where the lines were. And, and uh, my mom's people shook their head. But 50 years or so later, uh, Dad was right. My boys wanted to go coon hunting. Yeah, there's too many coons in the woods, and shooting coons is all right if you can go without sleep. I don't care for it myself, but I have a problem with coon hunting. It's the roughest crowd of, man, they all got snuff cans in their pockets, and Stand around at midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning shining lights and trees. And, it's, uh, and I pled with my boys that it wasn't, the sport wasn't bad, but the company that it drawed to it. And so I was glad when one of the older men in our church bought a dog and went with the boys. And it made me feel better. One day they got tired of going without sleep, too. When I was a boy, we went sucker dipping. Do you all know what that is? You do. About now, I think. Isn't it about now? When uh, the glaciers melt up there in the mountains of West Virginia and the waters rise and the suckers know it's time to go upstream to spawn. And so all the Mennonite boys the country ones anyway, 
We had these square nets with a long pole with a set of bows that held the net tight, and we'd put the thing in at the bottom of a little rapids, and the suckers would come there and pool around, and we'd get ready to go up the rapids while they rested. You'd lift that thing up, and we'd get them by the feed sack full. That was, you know, you had a fire on the camp, I mean, on the bank, and it was a good thing, but sorry company. A lot of, um, I hate to say this, but old order boys did that, and they smoked, and they drank, and they used the Lord's name in vain. And my dad and Simeon Heatwold were wise enough to tell, to let Stephen and Claire, Stephen is no longer living, Claire, Bishop Claire and myself, and they supplied the tractor and manure spreader. See, we weren't old enough to drive. And we put our gear in the back of the manure spreader and go out into the night and go sucker dipping. And they'd tell us what time we had to be home. And we couldn't say, well, we rode with the old order boys or whatever. And, we, and, we, and so my parents and Simeon and his wife did what they needed to do to accommodate the children but control the influence you will need to do that too. It's probably not sucker dipping. I don't know what's the cool thing around here. Volleyball tournaments or whatever, you know, you've got to watch the influence. Don't squash everything, okay? Right? You want to have fun, a little bit of fun? But you are vulnerable to influence. I am too. Okay. All right, well, I need to keep moving here. Be diligent. Be engaged and involved in your children's lives, especially during those young, impressionable years. Daycare centers are okay for you to run, but they're not okay for you to send your children to. If you want to influence somebody else's children, God bless you. But don't let just anybody influence your children. Mama's place is to influence her children, not go work at Piggly Wiggly, and let some lady down the road influence your children. It, it, it ain't going to work out. And then on the flip side, you have the patriarchal movement. And its approach is not the answer either. You know, where daddy knows best, and daddy has to baptize his children, he has to marry his children, and he has to teach them Sunday school, he has to homeschool them, you know. That's the patriarchal movement. And um, it's lopsided. Daddy don't always know best. We need community. We need brotherhood to grow a family. You know, when uh, little baby quails are out eating and mama's out there scratching, guess where daddy is? He's up on a fence post. And he's watching. He's looking for a shadow coming across the sky and it's the hawk, or he's watching for that coyote. And the patriarchal movement misses that. We need somebody's daddy because we can't all be there looking all the time. We need help. We need the support of each other, the Christian school, the local church, and that helps us to provide the cover needed to raise a brood of Christian children for Jesus. I've taught Bible school for quite a while, and I had a lady 
on the West Coast called me up one time that I knew. And she was going through a bad romance, and I thought, well, seriously, you're calling me? And uh, she wanted some advice, you know, advice. And so I called her daddy, and I says, your daughter has called me, and she wants me to talk to her or her through this. But I want your permission. She's not my daughter. She's yours. And I just figured maybe it would be safer that way. And he says, I want you to know that you have my full blessing to talk to my daughter. He said, it takes a village, a safe church community to raise a child. And I was so blessed to be able to speak into that girl's life with the blessing of her daddy because he knew that others could help him raise a guy. And that lady is doing fine. She's a godly young lady. She just needed some help then. And um, so uh, beware of this go it alone thing. It don't work for the quail and it's not gonna work for you either. I wanna suggest here that one of the best ways of forms of cover for protecting your family is a consistent family devotional and prayer time Remember, influence is huge, and so when you have a family devotional time, you're having influence. Now, um, I'm just going to give you a little illustration here of a teapot. This teapot, for my purpose tonight, represents mom and dad, and their little family is the hot water. And inside, I put some tea bags. That's God's Word. And so, as you immerse your family in this family in this teapot day after day and expose them to God's word we will put the lid on and see what happens in a minute give your family the gift of family devotions or a family time together with God it should be the anchor that starts each day or that each day holds to. Morning or evening, take your pick. I'm going to tell you this evening that family devotions are never convenient. It's a discipline and there will be plenty of reasons and excuses to challenge its existence. I was talking to uh, Ernest Hostetler one time. Some of you all know him. Um, Beachy Bishop in Abbeville. And he said, boy, he said, I, we had family devotions and went really good until my children got to be teenagers. They was never home at night. And you'll find that out until they go to, MY, to youth and to choir and to volleyball and, and to Hardee's and to McDonald's. And, <laughs> and then uh, Upper Crust goes to Starbucks. And <clears throat> Are you going to wait up till they come home to have devotions? You'll never get any sleep. And so, Brother Ernest is a conscientious man. He got thinking. So he set his family down. He says, says I got to go to work at 6. And Wendell, he goes to work at 5 or something like that or 5.30. And some of the girls were school teachers and some of them worked at other places of business. He says, what if we all get up and come down here at 5 in the morning and have devotions? And you girls don't need to get dressed for the day, but you got to show up modest. And when we're done, you can go back to bed. 
That's what they did. And so him and his son went to work, and, and the girls, I guess, went back to bed. I don't know what Mama did. Cleaned up those packed lunches, I guess. But it worked. Here was a man that valued it enough to make it happen in his family. I'm going to tell you, once your children go to youth and the evenings are full, it's going to be a huge challenge. Jesus says this in Mark 35, chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning, a great while before he went to, before day, he went to a solitary place and prayed. Psalm chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. My voice shall thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. I want to say that family devotions, do what you can to not make them boring. It's not, God is not after a great performance, but God is seeking worshipers who will worship Him. John chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such who will worship Him. You know, in all other religions, they're looking for a God to worship. But in the Christian faith, God is looking for me and you. No other faith does that. But God is up there. Meet with me. I'm looking for you. Don't let him down. As I said, try to keep family devotions from being boring. Ask the children's questions. Uh, read from a more flowable Bible translation if you care to. Read Bible stories. Missionary biographies. When our children got to be a certain age, we started reading the missionary stories. Uh, we read the Bible too, but we, man, they just couldn't wait for devotions. We were reading these stories to them. And, you know, 40 years later, Grace and I, she still reads, she's reading me Pablo Yoder's book now about the guy that, from Nicaragua that's uh, on FBI's Most Wanted list. We just read so many, but we just take time in the morning. We read the scriptures and sing, and we read a book. Make time for the things that you care about. Spend some time singing. Now, I notice you all have a, a tremendous history of singing in this church community. Uh, some of us, not so much. But you should sing. Teach your children to sing. Um, it doesn't need to sound like angels or altar of praise. Or the soggy bottom boys of southern gospel is your taste. I mean, God help you, but it should just be your family learning to worship a God who is seeking those who will worship him. Some of you all knew my grandparents, Grandfather Ralph and my grandmother Vera was deaf, and so she did all the reading because she couldn't hear. And so one time Grace and I passed through Harrisonburg on our way back to Red Lake, Ontario, where we lived. And we spent the night there, and Grandmother read the scriptures. And she was deaf, and she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, and Grandfather couldn't sing either. But they hummed some strums, some strains of something. 
And then grandfather prayed for his things of concern that day and my grandmother would look at his lips move. And he prayed for all the grandchildren that might be kicking against the pricks. And I did a quick retrospect of my 66 first cousins. And is it I? Is it, I? Is it him? But I knew that my grandfather cared. Early in the morning, he was praying for his grandchildren. I do the same today. My dad was a zealot about family devotions. I, man, we had this DHIA tester, and he would come in and sit with us and eat breakfast, and he'd sit out at the table. We'd go into the family room and have prayer, and this guy was uh, an unbeliever, and he'd sit there and listen to us have family devotions. And then it was the, when my mother had babies and the old order lady, Miriam Wanger, would come. And of course, in their faith, uh, you, could get, you shouldn't read too much scripture by yourself. And so she'd sit out there. But I would watch that lady listen to this family with devotions. Dad wouldn't cut his devotion short, much to our, we missed a school bus a time or two. He, he had his devotions, but anyway. I don't think you need to be that hard-boiled about it, but. We kept a lady from Ontario one weekend for a wedding, and she was from evangelical free, uh, conservative evangelical faith. And when she went home back to Ontario, she wrote us a letter and a card. She says, you know, I've been a Christian all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. But I've never seen some family have family worship. And she says, I want to if... By God's help, if I ever get married, I want to do that with my children. And I was so blessed. You know, dads, I need to peek once in a while and make sure all the children are praying. You got the eyes shut. Well, I peeked one time, and we have ours around the kitchen table, and there's a door there, and it's got glass in it. And then I peeked. I just felt the Holy Spirit tell me that I need to look. And they're <laughs> looking in the door at us, was the dairy um, extension guy from Clemson University. And he's Lutheran. And he's standing there looking and watching us pray around the table in the morning. And dirty breakfast dishes there. And then our eyes met. And it was just like he had a stroke. He's like, <laughs> Down he went. And he must have crawled out of there. But I've often wondered, what did Marion Hires tell the people at the office about this family he saw that morning? Did it speak to him? Your children should ask what's wrong or know that something's not right if you're tempted to skip. Work it out. You, if you want to have it at night, if you want to get up at midnight, whatever. But have them. I want to read you a story. Doest faithfully whatever thou doest, 3 John 5. Timid and modest Christians sometimes omit family devotions in the presence of distinguished visitors, and it's a sore trial for Christian mothers who maintain a family altar to lead the devotions before strangers. The following incident may stimulate some fainting heart to fidelity. Ten years ago... When an unconverted man, I boarded in the family of a pious woman, 
whose husband was not a Christian. There was a daughter of 19, another of 14, and a son of about 10. And every morning after breakfast, I heard that humble woman gather her family around in the kitchen and read with them a chapter in the Bible. And then, as I could not help but listening, there was a peculiarity of service which mystified me. And at last I asked one day if I might remain. And she hesitated. Her daughter blushed. But said that I could do so if I really desired it. And so I sat down with the rest. And they gave me a testament and we all read. And then kneeling on the floor, that mother began to pray audibly for her dear ones there, her husband and herself and then pausing for a moment as if to gather her energies and to wing her faith, uttered a tender, affectionate supplication for me. She closed, and her daughter began to pray. The poor girl. She was afraid of me. I was from college. I was her teacher. And she prayed tremulously and asked for a blessing as usual. Then came the other daughter and at last the son the youngest of that circle who only repeated the Lord's Prayer with one petition of his own. And his amen was said, but no one arose. And then I knew on an instant that they were waiting for me. And I, poor prayless me, I had no word to say. It almost broke my heart and I hurried from the room, desolate and guilty. A few weeks only passed, and then I asked their permission to come in once more. And I prayed too, and I thanked my ever-patient Savior for the new hope in my heart and the new song on my lips. And it is a great thing to remember that there in the gospel as in the law, provision made not only for thy son and thy daughter and thy maidservant and thy manservant, but even for the stranger within thy gate." Finally, to raise a successful brood, the mother quail has to find food. A little quail chick will consume its weight in insects every day to grow feathers. Remember, feathers. Flight feathers first and then body mass. Those of you that have raised a family of boys can identify with this. And my, my wife knows about this. Mealtime is when boys come to the table and continue to eat. Are we as careful and as consistent in providing spiritual food for those young ones in our care? Grace and I have an acquaintance who seem to constantly obsess about the type of healthy foods her children had access to, you know, whole earth, holistic, organic, you name it. But that same mother would push her child's high chair in front of the television when she found them in the way and seemingly had little or no concern for the nutrition of the food that she spared their, their young minds. Those children are in their 20s now. The one is vegan, and the other one may be healthy too, but spiritually it's been a disaster. 
it is very important that you not only know where your children are feeding, but who they're with and what they're feeding on. And I explained that a little bit before. You know, I was in Sulik out Ontario not too long ago, and there's a fish camp there for tourists. And they go to this one certain place every day and dump all the fish scrap from cleaning the tourist fish on this big rock by the edge of the water, and there's probably 500 bald eagles there. They can just go down there and eat that fish scrap to their heart's content. You know those eagles don't know how to fish for their own anymore. They've got used to that handout. And uh, one day, it's going to stop. And there could be some hungry birds. And they're going to have to go out and learn how to do it the old way. I could tell you another story, but I don't have time. Anyway. Be careful. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the Internet. You all have heard all that. And, you know, smartphones and all that. We know these things. But I want to tell you... <clears throat> It wasn't easy raising children back in the old day either. There was temptations back then, big temptations. But you need to really be on your guard because sin is so private and so secret. If you wanted to go to the movies up by Jess's lunch on the court square in Harrisonburg, you had to stand out on the street and then somebody would go by and recognize you and you would go inside and come back and smell like smoke. And then when you got home, your dad would say, where in the world have you been? And now people just whip out their smartphone and just look at anything because they can. It don't make it right. How many of you all have ever watched the movie Ben-Hur? You know what Ben-Hur is? Man, you're a pretty pious group. <clears throat> I haven't watched it either. But I, um, evidently, it's a very popular movie for men. It's about some uh, Roman guy in a chariot race. Or was he Greek? I don't know. But I remember two young men in the church that I grew up in who went to the movie theater and watched Ben-Hur chariot race. And they had to get up in church and make a confession. And yet, Anabaptist people watch anything. I am appalled at the stuff people say they watch. You should be too. Grace and I raised our family, most for the most part, in the pre-digital revolution age. Gideon and his girlfriend Margaret wrote letters. Carla and Jason were a bit older when they started to date. They mostly text and had phone conversations. Josh and Marcia text some and emailed some, but invested heavily in jet fuel. She lived in Nevada. Joel and Jody, I think, pretty much went paperless. Poor things. Aaron and Andrea, through the wonders of the internet, could have audio and visual and be 3,000 miles apart. He had one date and was in service for two years and came home and got married. Think of all the money he saved. <laughs> nah. There's a downside to that kind of dating, too. It's, it's fraught with um, a lot of misunderstandings. 
is the internet and those kind of things wrong? No. But there are dangers in every way. As I told you before, parenting is not for sissies. It wasn't back in the day, and it still isn't. You need to be on your guard. You know the story of Queen Esther and Mordecai, and, and he tried to talk her in to go to see the king, and she wasn't sure that she wanted to. And, and finally he says, Esther, you think that because you live in the palace that this doesn't affect you. But somebody knows that you're Jewish, and who knows, but you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. It was a very difficult time for God's people. And I think of all the godly families who are raising godly children now, in this present age. It don't look good. We've got decadence and immorality and disrespect and trucker convoys and lockdowns and, and Putin and disrespectful leaders like Trump. And it just don't look good. But God has raised you people up for such a time as this to raise the next generation of little quail for God's kingdom. I'm going to close with that tonight. I'm not quite finished, but I think you get my point. I want to bless you for your attendance and um, remember children. I'm going to ask you about your little proverb tomorrow night. God bless you. Oh, well, let's see here. Did uh, The water that I poured in there was clear, right? And uh, we're going to see if having family devotions... Mom and Dad in here with the Bible. And yeah, look at that. It, it changed the color. It impacted those children. Remember that. God bless you all.